Well, we are at, uh, at chapter 15, and John sees another vision. Now, um, remember how this works. There are, uh, his original vision is of a lamb who finally steps forward to break the seals on a scroll. Uh, he sees the, the scroll and says, you know, who, who is worthy? And finally the lamb steps up and the lamb begins to, the, 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 they begin to, to break the seals. We get through six seals, which takes us through a series of events during the time that we call the tribulation. Before they break the seventh seal, however, there is a, a, an interlude, if you will. And John is uh, enabled to see a vision of some things that are uh, happening in heaven. It's not always in time with what's happening in the tribulation, but it gives us background or it gives us a future look. But there's, there's an interlude before the seventh seal. And they finally then break the seventh seal and we get the seven trumpets. And the same thing happens. We get through six trumpets and then before we get to that seventh trumpet, there are some visions, some interludes, a, a time to pause and get some, some uh, background, some uh, understanding of what's happening in the spirit world. Uh, it kind of gives us a chance to, to take a break and breathe before the harsh reality of that seventh seal or trumpet. And the other thing that I want to remind you of is that uh, when, when we get to the seventh seal, that seventh seal is the seven trumpets. It's not necessarily that it leads to the seven trumpets, but breaking the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet, when it finally blows, that is the seven uh, bowls that uh, we're ready now for the angels to present the seven bowls and begin to pour out God's wrath. Um, <clears throat> when we get to the, the bowls, that's going to actually be next time in chapter 16. When we get there, you're going to be surprised how quickly we move through those bowls because it took a long time to get through the seals. It took a long time to get through the trumpets. When we get to the bowls, it's like boom, 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 boom. And I think the reason for that is twofold. One, because the, the uh, punishment on uh, the world at that time is so harsh that we don't want to spend too much time dealing with details. But secondly, I think it happens quickly because it will happen quickly. I think that the bowls are not drawn out over a long period of time. We've been through, we're, we're toward the very end of the tribulation now. And the last thing to happen is for God to finally say, okay, you've had all the chances you're going to get. Now here is my wrath, my anger, my, my judgment on you because you've rejected me all this time. And that final phase of judgment is, um, I think, happens very quickly. It's very harsh, but it is toward the very end of the seven years, and it happens quickly. With that in mind, 
Let's, let's go then to chapter 15, verse 1. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. So verse 1 actually introduces chapter 16. I see the angels, and they're ready. They have the plagues ready to pour out God's wrath on the people. And it says, with them, the wrath of God is finished. So it's going to be a short time. It's going to happen quickly, and God's wrath will be complete. That means once the wrath is done, the judgment is over, that means it's time for Jesus to come back and get things started into the millennial age and the new heaven and the new earth. But before we can experience that, John tells us more of the vision that he has about what's happening in heaven. It's like he introduces a story, but before we get to that story, he tells us a different story, another vision. So verse 1 says, the seven angels are ready. But before I tell you what happens with those seven angels, let me tell you what's happening in heaven. That's kind of what John is saying to us, okay? And remember, too, that this is a, he calls this a sign, um, as it's translated in, in this version. Uh, we might also translate it as a vision, a picture, an image in other words, we cannot translate this section too literally because it is a vision. It's, it's, it's not a play-by-play -play comment on what is happening. It's a vision that he has. So there is symbolism in the vision. Verse 2, I saw what, hap what appeared. I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. We have seen the sea of glass before. We were introduced to it um, earlier in the book of Revelation when we see Jesus sitting on the throne. They were actually uh, uh, the, uh, the one of ages sitting on the throne. In front of the throne is this sea of glass, is the way John refers to it. It's not, don't think of it as, as like a pane of glass. It, it is instead, when he says it's like a paint, like a, a sea of glass, he means that it's, it's transparent. Um, we find the same image in... Uh, described in the Old Testament by Moses of all people. He had a vision of God on the throne. And he said it was like clear sapphire. Um, and then Ezekiel saw the same thing. He said it was like a calm sea around the throne. And, and he, he said it was like crystal. So don't get too hung up on on clear sapphire versus crystal versus glass. The point is that it is transparent and beautiful and, and, it, and it's, it's calm. It surrounds the throne. It is the way God chooses to reveal 
heaven in a way that man's brain can begin to comprehend it. I saw what, ha what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. That's what's different. We've seen the sea of glass in Revelation, in uh, Moses' uh, writing, and in Ezekiel. But what's different this time is now it's mingled with fire. And fire is a symbol of God's judgment. And the idea is clearly that, that this is uh, the sea that surrounds the throne now is tempered with the fire of God's wrath, of judgment. Because something different is about to happen than has ever happened before. So the sea looks different. It says, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass. Now, who are those folks? These are the people who conquered, it says, who conquered the beast, its image, and the number of its name. Remember who was the first beast, the one that we've always called the Antichrist right? The Antichrist. He's going to come as a charismatic leader. He's going to be a political leader. He's going to be very, very attractive. He's going to be very powerful. And the, uh, uh, what John sees here is the people who conquered him, his image, and the number of his name. So, if you remember, after the Antichrist was introduced, a second beast was introduced to us that we understand to be the one we call the false prophet. The false prophet's job is to point everybody to the, the uh, Antichrist. The second beast points people to the first beast, right? Remember that that false prophet sets up an image of the Antichrist. That image somehow comes to life. We don't know if that's going to be um, like a hologram or, or some kind of a, a, a 3D technology or we don't know what that's going to look like, but there's a, basically a, a, a statue, an idol of the false prophet and somehow that thing comes to life because the power of the, of the uh, uh, false prophet and remember that the false prophet and the Antichrist working together establish a new system by which you have to have the number of the beast, 666, marked on you or you don't get to buy groceries. You don't get to go to the bank. You don't get to interact. So he has political power. What, what is the power of religion and economic power? How would one conquer that power? Well, when the Antichrist says, you must obey me, when the false prophet says, you must worship this idol, and you must wear the mark of the beast. 
then the way you conquer those powers is to say no. The ones who win are those who don't give into the powers. The ones who win are those who avoid worshiping Antichrist, false prophet, avoid getting the mark of the beast. They're the winners. And they wind up in heaven because they will be martyred. These who believe during the tribulation, who refuse to bow down to the Antichrist and his false prophet, who refuse to take the mark of the beast, they suffer and they are martyred. But we understand that they are the winners because they did not give in to the evil powers. And so where are these martyrs? They are standing around the sea of glass. They're standing there at the throne of God. It says also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. I think this is probably where we get that image, you know, that when somebody dies, they become an angel and they get wings and they get a halo and they get a harp and they sit on a cloud. I think this is one of the places that we get that imagery. Um, but understand this, this is, this is a vision. There's not a, a direct literal expectation of everything we see in the vision. We have to interpret the vision. And so what would it mean to have a harp, the harp of God? They are singing and playing God's praises. The martyrs, the ones who died in the worst time that you can and I could ever imagine, those who remained faithful. Remember Revelation reminds us that if, you are, if we remain faithful, even unto death, we receive the crown of life. These people experienced that during the tribulation. They remained faithful even unto death and received the crown of life. They now, therefore, are around this sea of glass at the throne of God, and they have their harps, they're praising, and they're singing. You know, when we get to, uh, when we get to heaven, there will be no preaching. Somehow that hurts me. There's no preaching ministry in heaven, but there is music ministry. Even those of us who like to debate this stuff all agree on this part, that these are the people who died during the tribulation because they believed and they would not give in. These are the ones we call the, the tribulation saints. And they are now standing at the throne of God, and they are singing his praises. Look, in verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Well, what is the song of Moses? I actually had to, had to look that up a little bit and do a little research because I had completely forgotten this fact. And you, you may remember, but I had completely forgotten after Moses leads the people out of Egypt, they cross the sea. 
the sea comes back over and it kills off the Egyptians who were following them. You remember the, the Egyptians get stuck in there and kill? Then Moses leads the people standing by the sea to sing praises to God. I didn't remember that part. Okay. <laughs> okay, yeah. And so the idea being, God is now in the process of setting them free and bringing them to the land of promise. And now that the enemy has been defeated, they stand there and sing his praises by the sea. It is a song of Moses. They are standing by the sea. The enemy has been defeated. They are about to experience the promised land for eternity. And so they sing praises to God. It's a, a, I think a powerful connection in John's image of what happens in heaven and the stories that he grew up hearing about what happened with his people and Moses. But it's not only the song of Moses, it's also the song of the Lamb. The song of the Lamb, uh, the, the Lamb of God leading God's people in worship. Um, it is also a, a song for the Lamb. Uh, it worships, the, the people are now worshiping God the Father, I thank God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look at the, look at the song. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Remember the context. We are just on the, on the brink. We are just on the verge of seeing the angels pour out the bowls of wrath. We're about to see the final judgment. And we might say, how could God hurt people? And so John sees a vision that sets the stage and reminds us, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord, the Almighty. The stuff that's about to happen is scary, powerful stuff, and it reminds us that God is almighty. He can do anything. But it also reminds us that just and true are your ways, O King of the nation. Just and true are his ways. We say, how can he do this? Well, remember, they have the world, when I say they, the world has voluntarily rejected him over and over again. Not only in today's society do we see the world rejecting him, but in the tribulation specifically, they have had the witness of the 144,000, whoever those folks are for sure. They've had that witness. They had the two supernatural witnesses. They had an angel that flew through the sky around the whole world telling them the truth. And time and time again, they continued to 
reject the truth. See, what God is doing is showing grace. He could have, you say, why seven years of tribulation? He could have snapped his fingers, had he fingers, and just wiped everybody out in an instant. But he chooses to take time so that more and more people can turn to him if they but will choose. And then when, when he's given all the time he can give, well, all the time he chooses in his uh, omniscience, he knows the right time. When he has given all of the appropriate time and it is clear that no one else is going to turn to him, then he pours out his wrath on those who reject the truth. So he is just and true. He is the king of the nations. I love that title for him because a king has a nation. But he is the king of the nations, of all the nations. We call him the king of kings. He's the one who's in charge of all the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? That's the question. How could they not fear him? He is almighty. He is the king. And if they, are not, if they don't fear him yet, after all they've seen, how desperately sinful must they be? And the question is a powerful one. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? Unfortunately, the truth is there will be some. They sing, for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. There will finally be a time when all the nations of the world that are rejecting him are done away with. And people from every nation that has ever existed who did trust in him will gather around his throne and worship him. You ever wonder what that, what that, that's going to be like? What we we used to call, and, and it's it's biblical, what we call the the wedding feast of the Lamb, where all the people get together and we get to celebrate with Jesus in heaven. That's going to be an amazing experience because we're all we all come from different backgrounds. There's going to be white people and black people and brown people and and yellow people, and green people, and red people, and purple people, and all kinds of people. And there, some of them are going to have funny-sounding last names. And some of them used to speak funny-sounding languages until we get there where language is no longer necessary. Let that, let that bounce around in your head for a little bit. Oh, isn't that going to be amazing? I'll tell you one day. The thing that strikes me so hard is that there won't be any Baptists there. Nor will there be any Methodists or Catholics or Church of Christ or Brethren or... See, those are labels we use here to figure out where we fit. But when we're there, we are, we are just the family of God. We don't have labels and races and languages and all those things that separate us. That's going to be an amazing experience. 
He is, it says, it says, you alone are holy and all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, he says in verse five, after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The tent of witness, that's a... Uh, that's a phrase that we can think of in, in terms of the, the temple, if you will. Um, the area that we often call when we think of the actual temple or even the tabernacle, the area that we call the Holy of Holies, the place where God himself resides. You remember there's a big curtain that separates that place from all other places in the world, really, but especially everything else in the temple or the tabernacle. There's a big, there's a curtain there. Well, that, that curtain is what's referred to in this phrase, the sanctuary of the tent of witness. The sanctuary is the place that God lives. That's why we call those rooms that. It's, it's the place where we meet God. They understood in a very real and physical and literal way that God lived. He resided in that Holy of Holies. And so the, the, the picture is that, that that curtain is drawn. After this, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The, uh, the idea there actually even goes back a little earlier where there was a place where Moses would go and meet with God. Even before temple and tabernacle and everything, there was a place where Moses would meet with God. Then he'd come out and tell everybody what God said. Well, that was one of the places that he met. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the idea is that, that there is there is that place where he resides. Now, John sees this as he looks in heaven, I don't believe that there's going to be a tent in heaven. I don't believe that there's going to be a curtain. I think this is the way that, that John, is, uh, John receives a vision that helps him understand in human terms some spiritual reality that, that would just be mind-blowing. And that is this, after this I looked, the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen. He sees coming from the holiest place he can understand, seven angels. Now remember seven is always the number of perfection, completion. And remember that angels are messengers their job, their purpose in existing is for God to use them to send messages, uh, sometimes to carry out specific deeds. But they are his messengers. And so when he sees coming from this, this holiest place he can understand, he sees these seven angels coming, the, in the number of completion, and they carry with them seven plagues. Again, the number of completion, which means that this is all the final bit of God's wrath. This is it. This is the completion of God's anger and his judgment. 
These messengers are clothed in pure, bright linen. That's a reference back to the priests. That's what they wore. Pure, bright linen with gold sashes. We, under, we, we see that and we recognize a reference to the priests who represented or were kind of like messengers from God to people. So in his image, he sees these angels coming forth. They have these seven plagues and they're dressed like, like the priests that, that God used in time of old. And one of the four living creatures, remember them? They hang out by the throne all the time. We've met them two or three times now in Revelation. They hang out at the throne of God. One of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. We, we saw that happen a couple of times. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6? He walks in and he has actually a vision as well. Uh, it was in the, uh, you remember chapter 6, the year King Uzziah died, uh, I saw the Lord. He said, I entered into the temple and the temple was filled with smoke. The presence, the smoke is a, a picture of the presence of God. When the temple was dedicated, it filled with God's presence and his glory. And so here John sees this happening again that one of the last acts uh, that takes place in heaven leading to the last act that takes place on earth as we know it is that the angels come forth and they are given these seven bowls of wrath of God. And when that happens, the sanctuary is filled with smoke from the glory of God, from His power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now that last phrase captures my attention. That God so fills the sanctuary, that his, his presence, his power so fills the sanctuary, even the angels can't get close to him until this final act is done. It speaks of his power at work in this process. It also speaks of his glory, that he is God. He is worthy of the songs that are being sung, and he is the only one who is holy and worthy of passing judgment on the world. And so 15, chapter 15 really sets up chapter 16. And in chapter 16, um, we'll see angel one poured out his bowl, angel two poured out his bowl, angel three poured out his bowl. And we'll see uh, how quickly God's wrath is completed when we get to that chapter.